This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Before beginning this week's episode, I do want to advise caution, as this week's episode includes details of sexual abuse that may trigger some listeners and may not be appropriate for young years. Welcome to episode 94 of the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. And this week, Mary DeMuth joins me to share her experience of being sexually abused as a child and how God not only restored her, he restoried her through the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Stick around as Mary also shares some ways Jesus followers can respond redemptively to the sexual abuse crisis happening in our churches today. Before we jump into my conversation with Mary, I want to thank one of this week's sponsors, Hope and Vine. Much like today's guest, Hope and Vine employ young women who have aged out of the foster care system, playing a crucial role in how their lives are restoried. All of us have a story, and every story has a purpose. This is why every item made by Hope and Vine has a deeper meaning. Each piece of jewelry and apparel is designed to remind and encourage you to believe who you were created to be. Each purchase helps young women who have aged out of foster care successfully transition to a secure and stable future. These young women work as artisans in a positive and affirming environment while creating Hope and Vine products. I own several pieces from Hope and Vine that always receive compliments from my friends. Because I know the founder of Hope and Vine, I can honestly say each item tells a story and behind every item is a young woman being loved and mentored as she creates. You can shop at hope-vine.myshopify.com. That's hope-vine.myshopify.com. And from now until December 31st, enter GRACE-2020 at checkout to receive 15% off your purchase. Now for this week's conversation with Mary DeMuth titled Hope After Sexual Abuse. Mary, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. Thank you for being here today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yes, I'm excited to dig into your story a little bit, but go ahead, introduce yourself, um, your family, tell everybody a little bit about what you do. Yeah, so today I wrote a letter to my, I have a prayer uh, group of people that pray for me in my career, and I, I basically said, I wear five hats and I think that was really helpful for me. It's like the first time I've kind of understood that I'm a podcaster, I'm a writer, I'm a speaker, I'm an artist, and I also train writers and mentor and shepherd writers. And so, um, I sometimes I just wish I could say I'm a writer and that's all I do. But, uh, because life is the way it is in order to make ends meet, I have all those hats and 
I'm a mom of three adult kids all in their 20s who are all off the payroll. Glory to God. <laughs> and um, you did on it. The, <laughs> I did it. They're, they all have jobs. It's all lovely. And I've got a husband and we'll be celebrating our 30th anniversary this year, which is Congratulations. exciting. Yes, that's a big one. And we live in the suburbs of Dallas, Texas. Uh, we're not, you might hear in my voice, I don't sound very Southern. I'm from the Pacific Northwest, Seattle, and grew wow. up there. Um, That's a big change. Whew. Yeah, we, we moved. The first time we moved from Seattle, it was 1998, and it was to Palestine, East Texas. And we now fondly <laughs> call it our first cross-cultural move because we were coming from like, latte sipping Seattle to like people that were <laughs> killing and eating possums for dinner. So it was oh my goodness. not the same. So <laughs> yes. So yes, we live in Texas. We did, we were church planters in the mid two thousands in Nice, France for a couple of years. And, uh, but now we're stateside, but we still do have our heart all over the world and yeah. go overseas as much as we can. Wow. Yeah. That's, I mean, a holy, a whole different culture shock as well. Just serving in France. I, I'm sure that's a whole nother podcast episode we could do just talking about that time, right? Oh yeah. That was uh, definitely a hard time, but I also see like for those listening today who are having a difficult story and they're in the middle of it and they don't see the end of it. I just want to encourage you that the seedbed of great growth was in that those biggest places of deprivation and in, in those times where I thought this is never going to end mm. and I don't know the end of the story and it doesn't look very good. <laughs> but in retrospect, I look back and see, wow, God really used that to grow me up. And so hang in there. Those of you who are in the middle of your story, mm. uh, it's going to get better. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that. So I want to get started by saying something that you wrote. You say, not only have I been restored, I have been restoried. And so let's take our listeners on a bit of a journey so that they will know by the time we finish our time together, why that is true. So take us back to your childhood and share what happened to you at five years old. Yeah. So by the time I was five, things were pretty rough in my home. My mom had already been divorced once. She was married to a very violent man um, who scared me to death. And uh, it was, we were poor. We lived in a very difficult neighborhood um, with a lot of crime. I was stolen from several times, just was really unsafe. And and my, my biological father would pick me up every other week and kind of swoop me away for a day and then bring me back home. And at the time, I thought he was like my Superman and my hero, but it turns out, of course, sadly, he was a predator as well. Hmm. But um, even though that was going on, and even though things were extremely unsafe, and that there was also a lot of drugs in the home and really scary parties with lots of people doing very scary things, I would go to a babysitter after kindergarten every day of my five-year-old year. And um, within the first couple of weeks of being at that daycare was, is in a house. And these two neighborhood boys who are teenagers knocked on the babysitter's door and said, we want her to come out and play. They pointed to me and the babysitter who uh, I still, you know, struggle to forgive, just let me go. And she knew exactly what was going to happen. And I didn't, um, I, I was not groomed. You know, a lot of people who have had a sexual abuse story, they have a grooming story, but there's no grooming. They just took me out and did it. 
Oh my gosh. And uh, in the woods. And so it was outside. It was in a ravine. I have since been to the park where that happened. And it was just as scary as I remember it, actually. Mm -hmm. Even my husband said, these woods feel haunted. And they, they did. They're just, it was a dark place. And so there was no grooming. And of course, they told me that they would kill my parents if I told anyone. And they also used a bad word to describe what they were doing. And I was a really sweet, innocent kid. And I didn't want to say that bad word. And I was afraid for my parents' life. And so it took me a while before I finally told someone. And something in my little heart knew that my mom wasn't going to be safe. I mean, it was a really unsafe home. And that my dad, who was predatory, was not safe. And so weirdly, I told the most unsafe person ever, the babysitter. And I remember whispering it to her. And this was after months of abuse. And this was after those teenage boys were inviting their friends. So this was not just two boys. It became a lot more. And it became very awful. And also it was happening in their home. Sometimes when their mom was in the house cooking, you know, baking cookies for them, I could smell it while they were harming me. It's just crazy. Yeah, it was just horrible. And so I finally tell her, like, I I think it was probably like three quarters of my way through my kindergarten year. And I remember her telling me that she would tell my mom and I thought, okay, I'm saved. I don't have to. And, and it just to say this too, that's really rare. Most little kids don't tell because they don't know mm. what the heck's going on. I didn't know what was going on. I knew it was wrong. And God graced me with this feeling of knowing it wasn't my fault, which was another grace that he gave me. But it's extremely rare for a child to tell. And so the fact that I did is, is surprising. But the sad thing was, is the babysitter did nothing. She didn't tell my mom. The next day the boys came, they knocked on the door again. And I thought, well, she's not going to let me go out because my mom knows. Well, she pushed me out the door again. And it took me, you know, a decade before um, I finally met Christ. And I was able to kind of think through this, that I talked to my mom to only to find out she had never been told. Been told. And so all those 10 years, that decade, I was thinking to myself, not a soul in this world cares about me. No one's going to take care of me. I was an only child too. So I had all that kind of isolation built into my life as well. So at the end of my school year, when my mom, I thought my mom knew, no one rescued me, I learned how to sleep. And so for the end of that year, I would just run into the babysitter's house, eat a very fast lunch and run into her bedroom and pull the covers over my head and pretend to sleep for three hours. And I just pretended not to be able to be roused. And in that way, I saved myself. And by the end of that school year, we moved away and I was set free from that trap. But like many sexual abuse victims will say in their story, they felt like they had a come get me sticker on their head. (laughs) And I felt like that too. And so I was constantly being chased by predatory people in different ways in different times and I'm grateful that I was able to run away from all of those um, pursuits during my elementary school years and junior high years. Um, but the, the positive part of the story, my father died when I was in the fifth grade. So Now, um, is that your biological father? But yes. you weren't living with him at this point? No, I wasn't. But I had hung all of my expectations and hope on him as if he were Superman, the one who swoops, you know, and I didn't understand that he was predatory. I just thought he loved me a lot. Um, mm. So, uh, cause you're, you know, you're just a little kid and, um, and it's your dad. Yeah. Yes. And now as I look back on it and this may sound strange to some people, but I see his death as a severe mercy in my life mm. because I would have been his 
full-blown next victim. I was reaching the age that he was preying on other people at that age. And so I knew, I know that that was a, uh, it was a rescue that I desperately needed and um, his risky behavior led to his death. So it, it all kind of makes a little bit of sense to me. But by the time I was in junior high and high school, early high school, especially late junior high, I was ready to take my life. And I just felt like there's no reason for me to be here except to be hurt. And my mom had married a third husband by then, and he had become everything to me because, again, I was this little girl who wanted a daddy, who wanted to hang her hopes on a, on a man who would take care of her. And they ended up um, going through a divorce and it just was devastating. And I never saw him for years and years and years after that. Like he left and that was the end. Um, and at this point, your mom still has no idea that any of that happened to you back in your old town. Right. Now, to be honest, I think she should have known um, because there would have been evidence. And so I'm not sure if she chose not to know or if she was just too high to know. <laughs> I don't this know. This whole time she continued to be yes, on drugs I had, and things like that. I had obvious symptoms of sexual abuse and I, I would have had physical evidence of sexual abuse. So um, even the teacher, my teacher in elementary school said something had changed in me. So there, it was very obvious that something, this sweet little girl now was acting out really weird for me. Yeah. Um, so I do think that on a level she knew, but she just didn't want to face that. So she didn't. Um, mm. I have, of course, forgiven her of all of that. But, um, you know, in the ties, that's been a long journey of forgiveness. Right. Yeah. I mean, any type of wounding in that way. Um, I mean, it just takes decades and a lot of hard work. And so that's something that I would ask you about, too, because it sounds like you have obviously done decades and decades of work. But if you're just talking, you know, about yourself personally and about a general audience who someone like me, I don't know a lot of people who have been sexually abused. What are some of those wounds that are pretty generally known if you've been sexually abused that you have to work through and that honestly, you probably, you know, when you get triggered and they come back up, you're working through them even as an adult. I would say that the greatest wound is or the the greatest manis, manifestation of my sexual abuse and i've heard that this is the case for others as well is disconnection and so when um all this abuse was happening i would disassociate and fly away in my mind and that was my way of dealing with trauma and it was actually a very good way it was a very good coping mechanism for a little kid because you can't face what's happening to you so you fly away that manifested itself in my marriage in the first um, couple of years early on in that my husband gave me this word picture that really helped me and made me want to get well. And what he said was, we're, we're in a pool, the kids and I, this is after we'd had all, all of our three kids. And he said, we're in this pool and we're splashing, we're playing, we're having so much fun. And you're pacing up above the pool on a high dive and you're afraid to jump in because it's high and you're not really wanting to and you're afraid. And we're, you know, doing life and connected to each other and you're up there. And he said, then I see you too afraid to jump in. And so you walk over to the side of the pool and you stick your toe in and that's it. Mm -hmm. And so it was just a really, it was a hard word picture to receive, but it was the truth because I had disconnected emotionally from everybody because it was just too risky. 
And so really my healing journey has been more about me reconnecting with my life than like um, even dealing with being triggered and things like that. Those things have subsided tremendously, but it's more like, can I, can I truly enjoy my life? Can I be present in my life? And another thing that, Mm. that it's manifested in me also in the way that God made me too. So I'm not going to say this is only trauma related, but I'm an achiever and I do good and I love to do good. And so, you know, some people that have a sexual abuse wound will go on the opposite extreme where they'll become promiscuous and they're like, well, it doesn't matter anymore. So I'm just going to do that. And then there's people like me who are like, well, um, I'm just going to be the best at everything and I'm going to get a lot of things done and I'm going to be perfect. And, and both of those things have their consequences. I'm not saying one is better than the other. Both of them are coping mechanisms. And so the and other- both are looking for love. Yes. One is I can achieve and earn love. And the other one mm-hmm. is I can perform, but perform somewhat differently. Yes. And get love by the way that I let my body be out there. So sorry right. to interrupt you, but no. just, you know, it, it ultimately is for the same goal. Yes. Of, I want to love be loved. Me? Yeah. Will you love me? And, you know, I think a lot of times those who are in rebellion, and this is really a good word for parents too, is that um, kids that have been harmed and if they've been harmed and they are rebelling, which can be a correlation, um, the question they're asking is, even if I do this, will you love me? Mm. And so for parents to try to have more compassion on their kids who are rebelling, that they're asking that question. Um, And then to try to get at the root of why, like I would have loved to have a parent or a wise older counselor friend say, why are you on this treadmill? (laughs) You're exhausted. I mean, I was exhausting myself getting my 4.0 and blah, blah, blah. Um, I was exhausting myself. I was making myself sick and I wish someone would have intervened, but. Yeah. I just kind of kept going. <laughs> the energizer well, so in your, yeah, in your teen years, you're, you're at this point though, where you say you're suicidal and you're like, I can't do it anymore. Would anybody else around you have known that was what was going on inside of you? Or was it Mary is out here with the 4.0. She's all the things that can be a tough one. And even having been someone who's dealt with depression, that's not, from any trauma like you've experienced, one of the questions I get asked most frequently is like, you don't seem that way at all. And so I'm curious if anybody in your life would have known, you know, where you were at. I think my stepfather had an inkling. And I think also that the way God has designed me is also the way he heals me. He has designed mm-hmm. me to be authentic and open. Yeah. And that has been the, you know, at times not very good, but at, at times very, very good. And so I also was very, so very broken. And I was so terrified that I sought out my counselor at my uh, junior high and he wow. saw me all the time. And so he did exactly know what was going on. I think he was very worried. And this was right during when all the divorce proceedings were happening and I was losing another father. And I do believe that he knew Christ. I think he just was just that stable, helpful, good man who I mm-hmm. needed at that time in my life. Yeah. And, you know, I was getting the good grades, but I would burst into tears in a classroom and he gave me this free hall pass that would get me out at any oh, time. Yeah. 
And the teachers knew I wasn't being rebellious or anything. I just was brokenhearted. Yeah. So I did, people did know, not a lot of people knew. My friends probably wouldn't have known. My journals knew I was a journaler. They knew my suicidal thoughts, but yeah. And as an only child, it makes it rough too, because there's not another sibling there to really, I, I had a half sister later on in life, but um, I never lived with her. So I've never, I've always been just by myself. So that was also kind of contributing to that feeling of isolation, as well as my mom and my dad at that, my stepdad was working swing shift. My mom was getting home just five minutes before he was, we had a 10 acre farm with seven oh, horses. Wow. And so I would get home from school alone and I would feed the horses, make sure the stalls were okay. I would make my own dinner and they wouldn't scoot in until 10 o'clock at night. And so I basically for a couple of years was completely alone. Mm. And uh, you can imagine, you know, kind of the bad things that would happen in your head with all that loneliness. That's right. That's right. Well, also in your teen years, you were introduced to Young Life. Mm -hmm. And at this point, I'm assuming, I don't know what your background is when it comes to Jesus, religion, anything. Being someone who is very familiar with Young Life, friends on international staff, staff, countryside, um, served in Young Life myself, I was really excited to read that part of your story because Young Life is such an organization that really ministers to broken people. And so tell us about when you were introduced to Jesus. Yeah, so I had a friend who in the ninth grade invited me to come to Young Life and I, I knew 0% about it. And I grew up in a home that Jesus was a swear word. Um, mm -hmm. I did have an experience where my grandmother, oddly, who was never religious in any way, had made me get baptized, even though I didn't understand what was going on. And I remember afterwards, um, it, it was a sprinkling baptism. And my uncle came up to me afterwards. He goes, now, aren't you glad you're not going to hell? And I was like, yeah, I am. I don't know what that is, but yeah, that sounds terrible. So yay. Oh my um, gosh. <laughs> so that's all I Bad theology. That's a whole nother like, ah, yeah, that was very, <laughs> very bad. Um, but I also remember coming up to my mom afterwards and saying, I just want to come back. I was probably in the fifth or sixth grade. And she was like, no, you're not going back there. We just did that to make your grandmother happy. So that was basically, that was my exposure to Christianity. I had none. And no one, I, as far as I know, um, unless you can't, of course, you could count my great grandmother, Mary, who I'm named after, who is probably praying for me. But other than that, I don't know that there was a soul in the world praying for me. Wow. I was really utterly alone. There were no Christians around us. So I went to Young Life that first year of my freshman year, and I started hearing about Jesus. And every single time I heard about him, my heart would just like start leaping out of my chest. Like, I just want to hear more about Jesus. Mm. And um, by the time I was a sophomore, they had their fall camp and it was called Camp Timberlake. And oh, uh, Timberlake, oh my <laughs> gosh, this is so crazy. Sorry. <laughs> it was in Washington state and it was, um, so I went there and of course there's all these trees everywhere. And I heard the gospel in the room and then I went outside and I knew that I was going to give my life to Jesus at that point. But the interesting thing about the story is that my greatest violation was under evergreen trees from those boys. And it was like in the middle of the woods and I would fly up to the top of those trees in my mind to get escape. And here I was sitting with my back against a gigantic hemlock tree mm -hmm. and just 
asking God to please be the daddy who would never leave me. That's all I really wanted. I didn't come to Christ with this like deep feeling of my sin. It was more of this like crushing weight of aloneness. And of course, as I, you know, continued in my walk with Christ, I totally realized I'm totally a sinner. But right. um, at that point, I was just a broken girl, desperate for a father. Mm-hmm. And um, so I met Christ as a sophomore at 15 years old. And I started kind of down the discipleship journey with Young Life and campaigners. And uh, by the end of that year, I had finally had a group of friends. I was very happy, very content. And um, we moved uh, at the Mm. end of my sophomore year, which is rough. But thankfully, um, in the new place, I... And I'd had a, I found a church by myself. Everything was by myself. I found a church by myself and all of this. And then we moved away about an hour away. And um, thankfully there was young life at that high school too. And so I got involved right away, became like a junior leader. And then I was also, I was a young life leader in college and after college. So I have definitely have that in my DNA. Um, Found a, a church by myself again. And there was just this kind of like, tenacity, I think, Mm. that was inside of me that God had placed in me of a longing to be okay. I was so broken and I knew it. I was not, there was no like delusion of I'm fine. I was none of that. I knew I was totally a mess and Mm. I knew I needed help. And so the first place I turned to in my teens was Young Life. What a tender mercy of the Lord. I mean, Mm -hmm. a true tender mercy that he just at times put things in front of us and we either say yes or we say no. And I mean, a lot of times high school ministries, college ministries is the tool that he uses. And I, I mean, I'm so grateful for college ministry. It changed my life, but Mm -hmm. yeah. And so did you end up meeting your husband through young life or how, I mean, I know this is totally like a side note, but I'm just curious because you're definitely, you come to know Jesus, you're serving him, but how did you guys connect? Yeah. So the other thing that was deeply important to me was church. And so when, and college um, was really the place where a lot of my healing happened and that was connected to my church. There was just a Mm -hmm. lot of people in that church who prayed for me and believed that God would heal me. And a very significant amount of healing happened because people prayed. And so I am very pro counseling. I'm very pro EMDR and trauma therapy. I'm all of pro all those things, but, um, I'm very pro prayer too, that that is not an, that is an avenue that must be explored in your healing journey, just as much as counseling. So, um, we met because I was attending this church that I've been going to for most of my college career. And then I went, I graduated from college. I went on a mission trip by myself to, uh, Malaysia for six weeks, which wow. is crazy Muslim country. And I mean, <laughs> and six was weeks I? is a long time for your yeah. first one. <laughs> and I was like 20 something, 20, 20 years old, 21 years old. And by myself in this very different country. And I came back and in the interim, this was a tiny church. Um, in the interim, my husband had started attending that church and he was, I, I looked over and he was praying for one of our pastors who had hurt his knee and so in my mind, I thought to myself, who's the cute praying guy? And so we, <laughs> we met in church, but we only met very briefly. And then he went on a three-month trip to um, Calcutta, India, and he worked at Mother Teresa's house for the dying when she was still alive. 
and got to meet oh her. Goodness. This is crazy because, well, my brother-in-law worked there and lived there for five years. Oh, my four gosh. Four years. That's crazy. Ooh, they could have overlapped. They you never know. Have. Probably a little bit later, but I don't know. Go ahead. Sorry. It was Yeah, it was during the time when she got her pacemaker. But um, mm. yeah, so he was there. We wrote letters, but we weren't dating. And then we he came back and... Uh, this was a long time ago in 1989. Um, we dated for 364 days. And on that 364th day, we were married. So it was a very short six months engaged, six months married. And uh, we've been married 30 years. So that is uh, but so yeah, we met at fantastic. Church. I love to hear those kinds of stories, just how things I don't want to say they come full circle, but they kind of do. Because once you enter into that covenant relationship of marriage, a lot more healing can come or a lot more woundedness can come. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like a lot more healing, you know, came for you. And so that's awesome. Are you living a story you don't like? I think it's safe to say we're all living with a difficult story these days. So I'd like to give a big thanks to our sponsor for today's show. Heather Dixon is an author, speaker, and Bible teacher. And as a survivor of an incurable genetic disorder, she is passionate about helping women find the courage to live by faith, especially when they don't like their story. Her new Bible study, Renewed, Finding Hope When You Don't Like Your Story, is for the woman who is not just walking through a season of hardship, but who has experienced a story that they did not choose and cannot change. In Renewed, a four-week study of the book of Ruth, women glean wisdom from Naomi's perspective, a woman who lived a story she didn't choose or like. With insight from her own journey of living with this story that is not easy, Heather teaches women to flourish, even as they live hard stories, by trusting in God and trading their heartache for hope. If you need a safe place to process your hard story, while allowing God's word to speak tangibly into it? Check out the renewed study at therescuedletters.com backslash renewed. That's therescuedletters.com backslash renewed. Friends, your story isn't over. Even now, God is working to renew it. Um, you have also written... Uh, he changed my I was statements into I am statements. I loved when I read that on your website. Will you share some of those with us? Yeah, I was actually just writing about that today on my Instagram account about the lies that we believe and the identities that we think we have and carry. Um, I would say one of my, of course, you know, after sharing this story, you would know that one of my, my, I was, is, was I was molested. And then the, I am is turning that around to really kind of look at the new things that God's doing in your life. And so I can honestly say I am on a healing journey and I have been made, you know, set free and I've been made whole by Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so one of the exercises that uh, listeners can do is just to really identify what are your I was statements? What are those identity statements? You know, like I was overlooked and then I am seen and known by the God of the universe um, to identify those wases and then to counteract those wases with the truth about who you are today in Christ. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's been a really powerful exercise. And one I continue to do now is just to remember 
I'm not the sum of my physical body also, you know, that's always a struggle for women. Um, it is what's inside in my heart that matters mo more and God has mm. redeemed that heart. And so just to remember that he can redeem any difficult story. It doesn't Absolutely. mean it's clean. It doesn't mean it's fast. I wish it was clean and fast, but we all do. it doesn't mean that. <laughs> That's right. Being made a new creation, a new creature doesn't mean that we don't have to work through a lot of that woundedness. It just means that, like you said, we went from, I was this, and now I'm in Jesus. And those things are made new in him. Such a gift. Well, you've also written, like you said, several books. You're an author, but one of them is We Too, How the Church Can Respond Redemptively to sex the Sexual Abuse Crisis. First of all, I want to ask, what are some of the ways as a church that we're missing the mark? Okay, big question. <laughs> yeah. um, actually, I have a, an answer today because... Um, I feel like we are so enamored with celebrity and status and fame Amen. that we will rally around the strong, famous one, and we will neglect the broken, hurting one. And we saw that today with um, the breaking news of Ravi Zacharias and some of his very awful behavior toward people in the spa that he owned, uh, women mm -hmm. in the spa that he owned. And so many, I cannot tell you how many people have run to his defense, like, oh, he's dead. How could you speak ill of the dead? Or, um, you know, he was such a great apologist for the faith. And those things may be true, mm -hmm. but it's doing us no service to throw things under the rug and pretend that they don't happen. And so I think when the way we're missing the mark is we're forgetting the humanity of our leaders and we're, we're wanting, I think we want to have church be this great place. So I call us the happy world syndrome. We want to believe that at least within the four walls of our church or our ministry or wherever we're hanging our hat, that everything's good there and that the world out there is bad. And so when DK comes into that institution or when there is someone doing bad things, there's two responses. One is cover it up at all costs and marginalize the victims. The other is let the light shine on the dark places. Mm. And I actually believe that most people in the world would be much more happy with the light shining on the dark places. I, I think a church that says, hey, we thought that this person was this way. Our, we've gotten an in investigation now. We know it's not the case. We are repenting of it. We're firing that person. We're so sorry. Here's counseling we're going to pay for for the victims. That to me is redemptive. But to mm. shove it under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist to quote unquote protect the institution is not godly. And mm. we see Jesus all the time saying that, that the religious elite where they always miss the mark. And I fear that we are, we are such a culture that loves idols. And I'm talking like idols, like people idols. Mm -hmm. um, we flock to them and we, we throw everything onto them, which is of no service to them. And, and I, I think we're just as at fault for throwing that on them. But in that place of isolation, when they begin to believe all the press that they're you know, God's gift to humanity and they have only yes people around them, it's a recipe for utter disaster. And I think I see God cleaning house these days wow. and just kind of shedding the light on some of these dark spaces. Well, and do you have anything to say to, 
we fire, you know, those people. And then what is, I mean, what would you say is the process for helping them repent, find forgiveness, and then move on? Because that's another part of the, you know, another side of the coin that's also like, what do we do with that? Because I feel like we see in the church a lot of times one extreme or the other. Mm -hmm. Oh, we've got to forgive them. You know, God forgave us. And okay, (laughs) I agree with that. But there does have to be something that takes place. Or, you know, you see the other side sometimes where maybe somebody will just completely shun the one that's not quite so popular and offer them no assistance. Do you have any insight into that? I think part of it is... It's kind of like, you have to look at it like drug addiction. So if someone's caught in drug addiction and they go to a place and they have all that help, I absolutely believe that's necessary and important and all of that, but you would never take that person and place them into the inner city where there's drug deals going on and have them pitch their tent there. Mm. I think ministry is that same kind of drug. And so we see a lot of this easy forgivism coming on Mm -hmm. where someone will have a quote unquote restoration of six months. And I'm sorry, but if they've devastated the lives of 58 people or however many that they've harmed, um, First of all, if they've, you know, if they've broken the law, they should go to jail. But second of all, they can't go back into the drug that caused them to have the abuse of power in the first place. Mm. So I would say absolutely there should be remediation and help and all of that. And is there forgiveness? Absolutely there is. But I, I'm very skeptical of a pastor who's abused someone in his congregation who immediately demands that he be put back in ministry and says things like, well, it's the only thing I know how to do. Well, no, I'm sure you can paint houses. I'm sure there are lots of other things that you can do to make money that is not going to be placing you in a place where you can abuse your power. Again, the temptation is ripe. Um, If you really were repentant, you truly were repentant, you would not want to go into a situation where you would be tempted again to do the thing that destroyed someone's life. Mm. I love that perspective because I'm very much a visual type person. So to think about it in the terms of if you were, you know, addicted to drugs, we wouldn't go and set up your tent right in the middle of a place where there's tons of drugs being sold. And that being, it's true, power is very much the same. And if you abused someone putting you back in a place of power is not going to remediate the situation at all. There's a way to be forgiven and redeemed without you going back to the same place where you wounded people. So thank you for that because it helps me Mm -hmm. to think through. Um, Well, so as followers of Jesus, and you've kind of pointed to this a little bit, as followers of Jesus who are a part of the church, not just staff people, Let's just take staff people out, me, (laughs) as a congregant. What is something that I can do to stand up against this crisis and to speak out for it? I feel like using your words that you just said helps, but is there anything else? No, I think, again, this is kind of part of the thing that I've been, just God's been throwing at me lately, (laughs) is that we need to get back to the idea of what church really is Mm -hmm. and church is community and it is often life change and discipleship. And let's go back to the young life model. Discipleship happens in one to two, one to three in these small groups of, you know, one-on-one. And so I think the greatest change can happen in the church when we 
become empathetic, kind-hearted believers in our circle. And mm-hmm. to, if someone comes to us with a story to always err on the side of belief, because typically people are not going to lie about a sexual abuse story. Like for the life of me, it's very rare to, why would I ever want to say this story? It's so embarrassing and terrible. It's awful. I don't yeah. want to be known by it, but if someone shares it, most likely it's true. And if it's not true, they still need help because uh, something's wrong, you know, with them if they're saying that. Yes. So err on the side of belief. If there is a crime involved, tell your friend that you are willing to be whatever you they need you to be. Uh, if they are, you know, let's say someone was date raped, if they need someone to go to the hospital with them, then go with them. Just be the hands and feet of Jesus to those folks. And and if you happen to hear of, you know, something wrong going on in church to bring it to the, you know, the attention of those in church. But if you have heard it's, if you heard something like, you know, it's an underage person, then it becomes a crime and that mm-hmm. crime then it has to be reported. And so your other obligation is, is to report a crime that has happened. I think a lot of times churches, I think they're getting better now, but in the past, what's been happening is that an allegation will be brought to the church. They're not equipped to do investigations. It's better if there is a crime involved to just get the authorities involved and let them do what they do best. That's right. It's not your job to do that. Your job is to love people and to tell them about Jesus. It's not to investigate whether that youth pastor did that thing. Mm. Um, Let the authorities take control. Yeah. Wow. Thanks so much, Mary, because we need a voice who's experienced the trauma and also is a follower of Christ who is really looking into what all is going on to give us a voice of reason and of discernment in situations like this. And so as we close out, where do you like to best connect with people? I have a feeling after this, some people are going to want to get a hold of your books and just connect with you more on social media. Yeah. So um, at Mary Demuth is my Twitter and my Instagram handle. Um, We2.org. So W-E-T-O-O.org. And then if you go to slash 21 days, there's a 21 day free email sequence that walks you through kind of best practices of healing from sexual abuse. And you don't have to be a sexual abuse victim. If you really want to help someone, you might want to get that In fact, just this week, I got an email from someone who's a Spanish speaker. She lives in Colombia. And uh, she said, I love this 21-day sequence. Is it okay if I translate it into Spanish? And I'm like, it's totally okay. You're like, please. (laughs) Yes. I love that. So um, yeah, I'm hoping to be able to offer that to Hispanic listeners um, soon. Um, and people can listen to, I have a podcast called prayeveryday.show and that's, it's very simple. Um, I read a scripture right now. We're working through the whole book of Genesis. I read a chunk of scripture and then I pray it's five minutes long and I pray according to that scripture for you. So, um, yeah, those are some of the places you can find me at. Um, my main website is marriedmuth.com and all that's there as well. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Mary, for your voice and for sharing your story. It's been my privilege. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to check out the show notes for links and resources at graceenoughpodcast.com. If you are a first-time listener, 
welcome. Be sure to visit the archives to listen to previous episodes featuring women and men who are impacting God's kingdom by taking small steps of faith in their day-to-day lives. And if you are a regular listener of the show, thank you for tuning in week in and week out. Head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Hitting that subscribe button makes sure that you never miss a new episode of the podcast. While you're there, would you mind taking a moment to leave a review of the show? Leaving a review of the show helps me to know what you're liking and how the show is personally impacting you. If you share the show on social media, use the hashtag GraceEnoughPodcast or tag me at GraceEnoughPodcast underscore Amber on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time.